Uh, on that note, uh, why don't we jump into today's word? And it comes from Mark chapter 10. Uh, and we're going to go from verses 32 to 45. Uh, just a disclaimer, I'm going to preach a little bit quicker than usual, just because my sermon's a bit longer than usual, so I don't want to... Yeah, anyways. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. The word of God reads, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do, you want for me to, uh, what do you want for me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which, with, with, with which... I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Mark. And as we continue this series in Mark's gospel, and we, we study this conversation that Jesus has with James and John and then with the rest of the apostles. Father, help us to recognize and hear your living word. This is more than just a historical document, but it is the primary means by which you speak to your people. And so, Lord, we pray in this moment that that is what we would experience, the hearing of your voice. And not just the hearing, Lord, we pray that this will be coupled by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us by the power of your word. Often it is difficult to reflect inwardly, to have a clear perspective of our hearts through the lens of the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we pray for humility. We pray for clarity as we examine our hearts in the mirror of your word. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, uh, we saw a gospel promise that Jesus gave to his disciples. Uh, it was a promise that if 
they left their homes and left their families, that they would be blessed a hundredfold, not just in this life, but in the kingdom to come. And I explained how this promise has often been interpreted incorrectly uh, by prosperity preachers that see this as a promise that God, if you sell your home, God's going to give you a hundred homes. And I explained that this promise wasn't a promise for wealth, health, and prosperity, but it was almost like a prophecy of what was going to come when the church of Christ would be established. That as uh, the family of God would grow, the people, the brothers and sisters that you'd encounter in the church would become your eternal brothers and sisters, and their homes would be your homes. And today's passage almost doubles down on this promise as Jesus preaches or speaks to his disciples on what I believe to be the cardinal ethic of Christianity. Not success, not prosperity, but sacrifice. And as we open in verse 32, uh, the, the Gospel of Mark reads, And they were walking, or they were on the road rather, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Now, uh, you're probably sick of me hearing this, uh, sick of hearing me say this, but we're in the second part of Mark's gospel. So if you're joining us for the first time, from chapter 9 onwards, it's kind of like part 2. 1 to 8 is part 1. Chapter 9 onwards is kind of like part 2, because whilst Jesus in the first eight chapters hung around uh, Galilee, in the northern part above Jerusalem, from chapter 9 onwards, it's like a one-way ticket Jesus is taking as he's moving intentionally towards Jerusalem, uh, which was considered the spiritual capital of the world at that time. And what's interesting is that whenever you see the Gospels talking about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem, it uses this term to go up to Jerusalem, which is interesting in today's passage because they're technically not going up. They're not going up north, they're traveling down south. Uh, But no matter where you were traveling from, no matter what direction you were heading from towards Jerusalem, the language that they used back then was that you were going up to Jerusalem because it was the spiritual capital of the world. Also, it was on a hill. So once you get get to the vicinity, you'd have to go up anyway. Now, what's interesting about the way G, or Mark rather describes this journey, the manner in which they're going up to Jerusalem, um, is that he adds a specific detail. He says that Jesus, if you look, was walking ahead of them. So there was a great crowd, 12 disciples. Jesus isn't walking with them. He's walking ahead of them. And why is this interesting? It's interesting because, you know what, like everyone else up until this point, they've been quite... I don't know if they've been like ignorant or just couldn't grasp the purpose of Jesus going to Jerusalem. But Jesus was aware of the purpose. He says that in today's passage that he's going to Jerusalem to fulfill God's will to die. That was the promise of the Messiah, that he would be a suffering Messiah that would die. And what's more, the fact that Jesus was walking ahead of the disciples as he went to Jerusalem, shows us that Jesus had no intention of trying to move away from suffering, but rather he chose to lean into it. Now, it says that the disciples and the people who were following Jesus were amazed and afraid. Why? Well, we don't know why, because Mark doesn't tell us. But uh, I read a lot of opinions from different commentators and scholars 
Um, they think it was because of what Jesus taught in the preceding passage about the promise of receiving a hundredfold when the church age would come, that you know, you'd sacrifice and God would give back to you. That's, that's generally the common interpretation as to why they considered the people to be you know, amazed and afraid. Uh, I humbly disagree with that. Um, number one, I disagree because whilst it might make sense to be amazed by that kind of a promise, uh, it doesn't really make sense to be afraid of that kind of a promise because um, it's good news, isn't it? Um, I think the reason that they were afraid was because of where they were headed. Jerusalem. They might not have understood yet that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die, but they would have known that something big was coming, that maybe a big fight is coming up. Because up until this point, who has been opposing Jesus? It was the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the members of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, all these people, these elite religious leaders, they were the ones that have been opposing Jesus, plotting his death. They were religious leaders, and yet they were plotting his murder. But where were these people all from? From the spiritual capital of the world, Jerusalem. And so they know that as they're heading to Jerusalem, Jesus is going into the lion's den. And they're afraid, I think, because of what's going to come. And they're also amazed, I think, because of the manner in which Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He walks ahead of them. He's not like begrudgingly, oh, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. He's walking. He's just like power walking towards Jerusalem. And it's at this point that whilst the people and the apostles are drowning with a mix of fear and excitement, Jesus says in verses 32 to 34, he says that he took the disciples again and he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, me, will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit, him, spit on him, flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. What a thing to tell to your followers to comfort them, huh? Here they are, racked with fear and anxiety, confused as to why are we going to Jerusalem, scared about what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem, and just Jesus, just check it out. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be captured. I'm going to be delivered over to the Jewish leaders. They're going to sentence me to death. I'm not even going to put up a fight. And because these Jewish leaders don't have the authority and the power to kill me, because they're under the Roman rule, they're going to deliver me over to the Romans, and the Romans aren't just going to kill me. They're going to mock me, spit on me, they'll strip me naked, rip my beard out, and I'm going to get crucified like a criminal. I'm going to die. What a thing to tell a bunch of anxious disciples. Here they are trying to contemplate the worst thing that's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. In their minds, they're probably thinking, oh, you know what? Scholars are going to come out and try to debate Jesus. They're going to you know, try to verbally attack him and trap him like they have been, they've been doing up until now. But Jesus says, you know what? Don't worry about that. Whatever you think is going to happen, guess what? It's going to be 10 times worse than that. You think I'm going to get into a fight? No, 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 no. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to go to be tortured, 
to suffer and to die. What a comforting, comforting thing to say. Now, it's at this point that James and John approach Jesus. And they, they really say something quite insensitive. Because James and John, they're two of the apostles. And if you remember their nickname, they were known as the Sons of Thunder. Uh, and I, I explained a few weeks ago that you don't get a nickname like the Sons of Thunder for being meek and gentle. Uh, you, you, get caught, you get compared to something like thunder because you're loud, you're obnoxious, you're reckless and brash. And so they come up to Jesus and they say, you know what, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Do you see what they're doing here? They're not saying, Jesus, you know, we've got a favor to ask. Can you, we'd really appreciate it if you do it. They're actually trying to trap Jesus into committing to a yes answer before they ask. It's like, you know, when I was a kid and I get into trouble, and my wife does this to me as well. She says, Jay, just be honest. I won't get angry. Just tell me what happened. I won't get mad. And in the same way, they're trying to trap Jesus. But Jesus doesn't fall for this. He says, what do you want? And they say to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, upon first reading, this might sound like a noble request. Jesus, please let us be by your side. Let us, let, like, we're brothers. Let us as brothers never be able to leave your left and your right hand side. We want to be with you always. That's what it kind of, well, that's at least how I used to read it when I was younger. Um, but if you understand the context of what it means to sit at the right and the left, you'll realize that this isn't a cute request for them to always be loyal and be with Jesus always. Because if you remember that, you know, the understanding that people had about the Messiah, they thought that Jesus was a political Messiah or a military Messiah. They thought that Jesus came to conquer, not a spiritual Messiah that came to die. And so they're still thinking in the context of this, this physical empire that Jesus is going to establish, this physical kingdom and not a spiritual one. And so to ask to be able to sit at the right and left hand of the person that they think is going to be the physical, political king, they're really saying, Jesus, when you become the emperor, the king, can you make us the second and third in charge of the country? Like if you think of it in the context of a monarch, I think one of the remaining monarchs in the Western world is probably England. It's like saying to King Charles, Charles, let me and my brother become the prime minister and deputy prime minister when you have your coronation ceremony. And this must have been frustrating for Jesus because in the previous passage, Jesus had just concluded to them, the first will be last and the last will be first. But they don't seem to get it, do they? And so Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? He says, can you drink this cup that I'm going to drink? What is this cup? Again, I explained a few weeks ago that the cup is a Jewish symbol. It's, it's riddled throughout the Old Testament and it's a symbol of God's judgment and wrath. Now, in hindsight, we can look back at the New Testament and the Old Testament and know that when Jesus is asking them, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? He's saying to them, the cup of God's wrath. 
the punishment for sin for all of humanity that I'm going to drink down. Can you drink that? This journey of suffering that I'm going to embark on that's going to end with my martyrdom, my death. Can you do that? You've got no idea what you're asking for right now. You want to be on my left and my right hand? Do you even know where I'm going and why I'm going there? Do you understand that I'm going to drink down the cup of God's judgment and wrath for people like you and be crushed under the full force of his judgment on the cross? Do you understand that this trajectory that we're headed to towards Jerusalem, it's a road that is marked with nothing but death and suffering? The disciples have no idea that this is what Jesus is saying. And so being the sons of thunder, they give a quick, reckless response. They say, we are. Oh, yeah, no problems, Jesus. We're able. Of course we can do that. And they don't understand it now. But in due course, they'll understand what Jesus was talking about. Why it was such a significant thing to ask for, to sit at the left and the right hands. Because as time goes on, when Jesus is crucified, they probably would have looked up to Christ as he hung on that cross. They would have seen who was at his left and his right hand. The two thieves that were crucified alongside him. This was probably why Jesus said in verse 40, to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. Because the road to the cross was a path that Jesus walked in submission to the will of the Father. Jesus wasn't heading to Jerusalem, dictating to God the Father how he thinks things should work out. He wasn't saying, you know what, God, I know this rescue mission that we're embarking on, maybe we should do it, maybe it would be more efficient if we did it this way, or maybe we should establish a physical kingdom. He doesn't dictate to the Father, but as God the man, 100% man, he walks a life of obedience as a man on a one-way ticket to the cross. Now, the other disciples overheard James and John ask for this selfish request. Can you make me the prime minister and deputy prime minister of Israel? And they're pretty annoyed. Like, who do you think you are? We want, you know, you can almost imagine Peter piping up. Peter, the stubborn Peter. Like, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? Like Peter probably would have said, I'm the guy that Jesus says I'm the rock on which the church is going to be built. What makes you think you deserve this kind of glory? But here's the thing. All of them have a skewed understanding of the mission of Jesus. And even after what Jesus said last week, it seems they have a skewed understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to be a leader. And so Jesus, like with any good leader, calls a team meeting to reiterate what he previously taught them in last week's passage and to clarify what leadership looks like in God's kingdom, what a follower is meant to look like in the context of God's kingdom. Verses 42 to 44, Jesus called them or called them to him and said to them, you know, those who are considered rulers over Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus says for the Gentiles, and not just for the Gentiles in the New Testament time, but typically in the secular world, rulers tend to use their positions as status symbols, symbols of power. And usually they, they exercise that power and authority over people. They strive for positions of success and authority because it gives prestige and glory, doesn't it? Most kingdoms, they have this kind of formulaic structure to it. Even, you know, you look on TikTok and social media and you look at those motivational quotes. It's all about making your way to the top. All about the hustle. But Jesus says, not with my kingdom. Instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Slave. Not just a little bit lower. but the lowest, the servant, the one who has to work and sacrifice. Notice that Jesus doesn't tell them to strive to be first, but he clarifies instead what their understanding should be of what it means to be first. And he clarifies it not just with words, but by demonstrating it himself. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see this not just with words, but Jesus putting his money where his mouth is as he goes to the cross. Because the cross presents Jesus not as a military king, not as a political messiah, but as a servant king, a sacrificial messiah. And then that's how today's passage ends. Maybe I did preach a bit too quickly. But we've rushed through this passage at an incredible pace. Maybe too quickly. Uh, but if there is anything I want us to take away from this passage, it's this. I want you guys to have a think this week about what it means to be with Christ. Or what are my ex expectations of what it means to be with Christ? Or be close to Christ. Because if you're like me, intimacy with Christ or being a follower of Christ, like over the years, I used to, it, it'd conjure up thoughts in my head and expectations. You know, when I think about being with Christ, it's about having an assurance of my salvation, having spiritual stability, security, growing in holiness. But at the heart of today's passage, and what Jesus has been repeatedly saying in the last few passages is that being a servant of Christ, being a follower of Christ, and being with Christ himself means being a servant. This isn't optional. It's not, oh, maybe you've called to be a servant. Maybe this is your spiritual gift. This is something that Jesus says should define all of God's people. If you want to be first in the kingdom, you need to be last of all and servant of all. Not just a servant, a slave. He uses the Greek word doulos, which literally means the slave. The same slaves that used to wipe animal feces off the feet of their masters when they'd come home. You are to be the lowest of all. There's no way around it. Salvation 
stability, security, holiness. All of, the, all of this is important. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not. They're great things. But just as much as these things should define us as followers and believers of Jesus, you have to admit, the fact that Jesus keeps repeating this idea of the first being last and the last being first, whenever the scriptures give us an example of repetition, whenever you read the scriptures and you see something being repeated over and over again, that's why in the Psalms, if you see, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, or sorry, not the Psalms, the New Testament, uh, when Jesus says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, it means what he's going to say after is actually pretty important. Even in the Psalms, you see thoughts being repeated, reworded differently, but the same thought being repeated verse after verse because it's implying something important. And the fact that this is repeated means that it is important because Jesus says this is a key character trait, not a secondary optional character trait that's for some people and not for others, but for all people. We are called to be servants, to be last of all, and to live a life of sacrifice. I mentioned a few weeks ago that for anyone that claims to follow Christ but has never experienced brokenness over their sin, never really come to a place of true repentance, I was quite direct in saying that if you've never come to a place of spiritual brokenness over the repentance of your sins, that it doesn't matter if you prophesy, doesn't matter if you can perform miracles and pray in tongues, doesn't matter if you can miraculously heal people and raise people from the dead. If you've never come to a place of true repentance, then you have to question whether you've ever received the Holy Spirit at all. And it's not just with that, but with this as well. Because similarly with today's passage, this teaching from Christ that's repeated multiple times, it's a teaching that flips the secular understanding of leadership on its head. The cultural understanding of what it means to make it to the top, Jesus flips this mode of thinking on its head. Because deep down, all of us, we love glory. We love a bit of prestige. Even as kids, children love glory. You know, they watch their famous soccer like Ronaldo scoring a goal and doing that stupid boost of celebration. And the kids emulate it. Why? Because they want to emulate that kind of glory and know what it feels like. We desire it, don't we? We celebrate and strive for greatness because it gives us a sense of achievement and status. And to be honest, it feels good. We like status. But Jesus tells us that greatness in the kingdom of God doesn't come through this kind of thinking, making it to the top. It comes through serving, through servanthood. And yet despite this, I think sometimes we undermine the importance of service. Because service is God's design, demonstrated through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It demonstrates what humanity should look like if they follow God. Because no one was closer to the Father than the Son. And I think Jesus teaches this and demonstrates it himself for a few reasons. And to kind of flesh that out, um, I just want to share a story about a friend of mine. 
And this friend, uh, he served, he became a Christian, and he served uh, at a particular para-ministry that was aimed at Asian youth. Um, and this, this para-ministry, they would get invite churches from all over Sydney, and they would invite big-name preachers like Francis Chan, and I, I, don't, I never really was a part of it, so I don't know who else, but I heard it was a lot of big-name preachers. And, you know, my friends registered to volunteer to serve at these events. And it was a pretty intense event. Like, they would hold, like, intense prayer meetings to pray for the students, pray for the speakers. They would just pour their hearts and guts out to make sure that the youth that attended, that they would need, leave no stone unturned to make sure that they encountered Christ. This period of service really stirred him up, and I could see visible changes in his life. He loved this paraministry. He loved being able to serve the next generation. Uh, but sadly, after a bit of time, due to internal politics, uh, this paraministry had to disband. And each time I'd catch up with this friend after this ministry had disbanded, uh, he seemed quite spiritually lost. Because uh, experientially, he, he received so much from this paraministry. He got to feel, experience, and witnessed so many things at the rallies that they held. And as this paraministry came to an end, it was like he went on a journey, trying to search to recapture that experience that he had, to rekindle that spark. And on this journey, what he did was he went to other rallies, didn't go to volunteer, but he just, he just went to all these conferences. Every conference that they would have, even if it was in other languages, he'd just go, he's Korean, so he'd go to a Korean conference even though he couldn't speak Korean, but he just went to everything. He went to every camp, went to the camps at his church, went to the retreats at his friends' churches. But everything he felt, he said to me, felt temporary. Like a little spark that's like tick and then it just disappears. A little burst of passion, but then the moment the lights came back on and the music stopped, it was like whatever he experienced just disappeared straight away. And he said, Jay, I don't, I don't know. How do I pinpoint what's going wrong? I feel like I'm growing distant from God. And maybe you guys have felt that. I know I felt that growing up in the church. You know, there's times where it's like I spend time in the Word. I go to every CG group, like back, back then, and I go to every prayer meeting, but it just all felt robotic, felt stunted. What was missing? Well, I had a conversation with an elder from my old church the other day, and he shared something to me that I think hit the nail on the head. He said, often people go to church and go to conferences wanting to hear a great sermon or be led with an awesome worship session that just takes the roof off the building. And they go to a church because they want to be served so that they can experience God's grace, and that's it. But he said a lot of people forget that when you go to church or go anywhere to be served, that the grace that you receive through that church or through that event it's designed to transform us, 
not to continue until the day we die, just repeating that same process, rinse and repeat being served, but to do what Jesus says, to live the life of a servant. If you want to be first in God's kingdom, to have a right hand at the place with God, to experience intimacy with God, Jesus says, no better place to begin than at the end of the line. Last, having a servant heart. And that's accomplished by actually allowing the Spirit of God to have his way in us. Have you ever thought of it that way? That refusing to live the life of a servant, you know, if you refuse to repent, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. But to refuse to serve after being transformed by the grace of God, that too, in a way, is resisting the Spirit of God trying to work in you. Because we see in the person and work of Jesus, his perfect life, he lived the life that we were meant to live before the fall. He lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we were meant to die, not just to save us from our sins, but to emulate what it means to be an image bearer of God. To live the life of a servant, being last of all, servant of all, and slave of all. And I genuinely believe for my friend that when he served in the para ministry, when he served at this, I don't want to say what ministry it was, but when he served here, and I saw the transformation, I hand on my heart, I can say it was a genuine work of God. I saw him, radical changes in his life. But as that para ministry disbanded and he went on that journey, I think his mistake, and the mistake for a lot of us, is that he tried to rekindle the fire by attending as many rallies, camps, and conferences as possible. And his focus was getting servants to serve him to rekindle the joy instead of seeking to be the servant himself. Because I think what God used to transform him was his act of service in serving in this para ministry. And this isn't a slight against him, because we're all guilty of this. But what God's word does today is it gives us an opportunity to repent and reevaluate how we do church and how we do the Christian life at full life. At full life, we are here to serve you. Make no mistake about that. We will sacrifice for you. We love you. We care for you. We will walk alongside you and support you. But God's grace, again, make no mistake, is designed to transform you, not to just continue being served, but to become like the ultimate servant, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I just want to conclude by being, being real with you guys. Uh, serving is not easy. And I'm grateful, so grateful for the people that have served this year and have just continued to serve FLM. But serving, for those of you who do serve, you know that serving can be difficult. It can be hard. There's reasons why it becomes, maybe it's like relationships with other people can be hard. It's like lack of resources and just frustrating because you pull this effort into something and it just doesn't work out the way you want it to. Serving will often take you to places where things seem impossible. Not to seem impossible, it is impossible. 
But for our Lord, it was no different, was it? He became God the man, 100% man, lived 33 years, and of all people, Christ encountered the humanly impossible. Things that were just impossible to get over or deal with. But even in these situations, we see Jesus demonstrating the right response of any believer when faced with the impossible. And that is to pray and lean upon God. He didn't go up the mountains to pray so many times at the crack of dawn just to look religious. He did it because as God the man, he needed intervention from the Father. Because what is prayer? Prayer is saying to God, this is impossible and I cannot do this without your strength, without more of your grace, without more of your filling of the Holy Spirit. No one demonstrated this more than Christ. And I think that by shying away from serving, we do more damage to our faith than good. I know like we have this sense of, okay, I don't want to serve too much because I don't want to become time poor or I just want this year to be about receiving. I just, I just want to grow. But you'll grow more quickly, I think, than when you serve. Because when you serve, things become hard. You get faced with impossible situations. And when you're faced with impossible situations, you'll be left with no other choice than to lean upon God for mercy and for help. And then you have, when that happens, your own personal testimony and encounter with the risen king. That you faced the impossible and instead of leaning away from it, kind of like with Christ as he walked ahead of his disciples to Jerusalem, you chose instead to lean into it. That's my hope for you and for myself and for all the leaders, anyone that walks through FLM, that we would live a life of service because the servant life is hard. It is humbling. But the danger of neglecting a life of service is depriving ourselves of the opportunity to make it a habit of leaning upon God because what better way to grow your faith than to watch the hand of God moving to accomplish the humanly impossible. Let's pray. Father, maybe it's culture, or maybe it's our, our flesh that desires stability and ease uh, with our life. But Lord, as we examine the life of Jesus, help us to reflect with a heart of humility. That when we say we want to be like Christ and look like Christ, that we look at the whole picture. It's not just about being pious and holy, but we see in Jesus Christ our Lord, not a military king, not a political king, even though he was worthy of all these things, 
but we see a suffering servant king. And so, Lord, I pray that for this week, that for myself and for the members of FLM, as we meditate on this passage again in Mark's gospel, help us to reevaluate opportunities to serve. Because it is an opportunity. An opportunity to lean upon you. An opportunity not to remain in despair when faced with a hopeless situation, but an opportunity to go up to the mountain to pray and see you do what only you can do. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us here today because I'm no different either. Humble our hearts and constantly bring us to a place of reflection to ensure that servanthood is something that defines us as a people of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.